Take your copy of God's Word, turn to the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the entirety of the opening chapter of this really sermon that was penned. Uh, Read the entirety of the chapter, only going to deal or at least begin to deal with the first two verses of the chapter, but I want you to see all that the writer here is saying as he opens Uh, this letter. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, reading the entirety of the opening chapter. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's hear from him even as his word is read this morning. Hebrews 1, beginning with verse 1, long ago, and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of a of right of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider this portion of it, or the subject matter, the glory of Christ and his prophetic office, let's pray and ask for the help of the Spirit together. Father, as we now look at your word, we look into your word, we hear from it. We pray that we would hear you. We would hear the very prophet of God, your son, your beloved son. We ask, Father, that you would grant to us the ability to hear and see all that you have for your people. Even in this hour, may we see something, may we behold once again anew even the glory of our Savior, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. In one commentary, a scholar, as he opened his discussion on this particular letter, the letter to the Hebrews, he begins by saying the following, quote, a scene from Jesus' life in ministry, wonderfully depicts what the book of Hebrews is all about. In Matthew 17, we read and we learn about Jesus who took three of his closest disciples up on a mountain where they saw him transfigured in glory, speaking with Moses and Elijah. Peter, of course, Impetuous Peter, you know how he is. Peter proposed building a tabernacle for the veneration of these three spiritual giants. But just then, the Shekinah glory, that Shekinah glory cloud enveloped them in brightness. And the voice of God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen. To him. When the disciples rose from their terror, they did not see either Moses or Elijah, but they saw Jesus alone. It was A.W. Pink who commented on this very event, and 
in which he said the glory associated with Moses and Elijah was so eclipsed by that infinitely greater glory connected with Christ that they faded from view. In this sermon series, and I've entitled The Glory of Christ, I've labored and am laboring to show you the glory of Christ throughout the various lives, various stories and narratives and events that took place across the canon of God's Word, it may be safer to ask you this morning, as we consider the prophetic office of Christ, it might be safer to ask you, do you see the glory of Christ in what you hear Him say? I think it's natural, of course, that we get a little hung up, perhaps, on when we hear the expression to see the glory of Christ, we immediately move to our sight, we move to that which we can see within our visual realm and that spectrum, Men miss, I think, the potential of losing that blessing that comes from seeing the glory of our Savior in that which He communicates, even how He communicates to weak and sinful people. It was His Father, wasn't it? In that section I just read from Matthew 17, it was His Father who said that we should listen to him, the same father who delighted in, in casting the glory of the triune God, the glory that, that is reserved only for the triune God upon his son, who loves to see his son glorified. He says to them, You want to see my son's glory? You need to listen to what he says to you. He is indeed the glory of the triune God, and he does speak, doesn't he? He speaks, and he's still speaking today. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me. He's speaking to weary sinners, pilgrims in a journey that seems awfully hard at times. He speaks, and therefore then we, well, we should listen. We must listen to him. He communicates the exact image of God to simple creatures Simple creatures of dust. Therefore, there are really two questions as we consider the glory of Christ in His prophetic office this morning. First, do you see His glory in the words He communicates to you? Do you see His glory in those words that He gives to you, whether it's in the written word as you read your Bibles at home or wherever it may be? But second... And really, as important as seeing it, you must then, what? Listen to what he communicates to you and do it as well. You see, this is the way in which we then will behold the very glory of Christ. It was his glory to come to sinners and to preach to sinners and to speak to sinners and to give the sinners hope, the only hope that man has. It was his glory to do it. He set his face like a flint. It was his Food to do the will of his Father, to go to a cross, to proclaim the excellencies of his Father's kingdom, that you and I might have some hope, the, the only hope, for our lives. Put a different way, everything that the Savior says contained within the Word of God is really, indeed, a life and death matter. To not see the glory of Christ and what he says to you and to me is to miss the gospel is to miss the hope of glory. But to see the glory of Christ and what he says to you this morning gives hope even in times of hardship and difficulty and weariness and struggle and temptation and sin and in all of it that comes from living in a fallen, miserable world. Now the context of the writer to the Hebrews at least is that he is setting up before this church primarily Jewish in nature, but Gentiles mixed in, no doubt about that, no question. But he's encouraging them to recognize that in Christ they have much better than they've ever had before. And all the prophets of old, even the angels that were used by God to bring the law and to minister to to the saints of old, the saints of today, and even Jesus himself, better than Moses, who is arguably the most important figure in the Bible other than Christ, 
better than Joshua, better than Melchizedek, better than the priesthood of old. He, he's laboring to show the glory of Christ and the importance of Christ, the final prophet of God to them. And he begins there. He doesn't begin anywhere else. He doesn't begin with his incarnation. He, doesn't, he begins in the fact that God has spoken. And he spoke and he is speaking through his son to his church today. And so I want to show you this morning the glory of Christ as the prophet of God that you must listen to each time he speaks. I want to show you the glory of Christ as the prophet of God that you must listen to. Uh, you must listen to each time that he speaks. Two points as we consider really topically, and as I've mentioned already, we're going to bounce back into Matthew here soon. The two points, we're first going to consider the picture. The picture that's established and rooted in the Old Testament economy. All that picture, that, as it were, uh, that shadow, that foreshadowing of the prophet to come in the lives of the prophets of old. And then we'll see the fulfillment, of course. We'll see Christ as he who exercises the office of the premier prophet of all time. We'll see first the picture and then the fulfillment. Let's consider the picture. It begins really with a great encouragement. If you look down at your Bible and you notice the very opening words of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke. Now we tend to rush over these phrases. We tend to move past them relatively quickly because we know instinctively what that means. God told us something. He communicated. We know what that means for people to speak. I'm speaking right now, and God willing, you're listening. There's communication going on. But here's what we often can miss and forget easily. And why it's such a big encouragement to read those words. The encouragement lies in the fact that God did, in fact, speak. You see, brothers and sisters, he didn't have to. He was under no compulsion to say anything to you and me. He could have left us in our misery, our sin. He could have just left us there to rot and die and spend a horrible eternity away from his comfortable presence. He could have hid himself for all of eternity. He could have done that, and we would have never known that there's a God in heaven. He could have left us completely ignorant, blind to his beauty, his glory, his majesty, all of it that he said. But he didn't, did he? Even in that darkest moment, in Genesis chapter 3, when man so egregiously rebelled against the, the simplest of terms, to simply obey him and, and not eat of this tree, there, then, there, even God came and spoke hope to weary people. He speaks. He, as it were, reveals himself to us. Now we ought to stand back and reflect just simply on the simplicity of it and its complexity. The infinite God, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, beauty beyond beauty, all-glorious, whether you acknowledge it or not, decided to speak to sinners to reveal himself to those he made in his image. He did it first, of course, in a general sense, and he does it even today in a general sense. He's speaking in that glory that we behold every single day as we walk out of our homes, even in sub-zero weather. And we see the sun, there it is in the east, just like it was yesterday and the day before and the day before that and the day before that. The habits of God are speaking. And the changing of the seasons, hasten the spring, please. All of it, God is speaking. The psalmist picks this theme up in 
Psalm 19, when he talks about the glory of the firmaments and the heavens declare, they preach, they speak the glory that is his to us. We see it in the stars and the moon and the leaves that change and then fall on the ground and the grass that grows that has to be mowed and all of the things that happen throughout our days we see and we take note that God is communicating. He's preaching to people. The question is, are we listening to him? But then, more specifically, he speaks plainly in the sense of special revelation, typically reserved, of course, for the very word of God itself, that those 66 books that we call the canon of the Bible, the inspired and infallible and errant word. But, but the triune God determined here to reveal himself to us. To, to give us his word in the first place is an act of great condescension because it is, again, the triune God speaking. The mind of God is communicating to us, exacting in specific and clear language of what man must believe about God and what duty God demands of us. God did not have to tell us anything. God did not have to say a word. He did not have to give us a Bible. He did not have to move men, 40-some-odd men, to write the very word of God to us that we might have a light to our path. God has been speaking. He's been speaking ever since he created the world. God spoke. Instead of leaving us to wander in our sin and die a hopeless and helpless life, forever banished from his presence, God spoke. He spoke long ago, the text tells us. A direct reference to the Old Testament economy and the period of the Old Testament, including very much the early days of the New Testament, where he spoke how and in what way, what were the, the means by which God communicated in those days. Well, I just have a short list here. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on any of these things. But God employs means to communicate, to speak, to say what His will is for us. Well, how did He do it? Well, often in the early stages of the Old Testament, He spoke directly. That is to say, as it were, the proverbial voice from a cloud came and men heard Him speaking, in their language even, which wasn't a problem for Him, of course. But He heard them. Or they heard him. One only has to think of the events of Exodus chapter 3 as Moses is there, behold, out there, tending the sheep, doing what he's supposed to do, laboring for his father-in-law, and he looks off in the distance and he sees this bush. It's burning, but it's not consumed. Much like it would be for you if you were to drive down the road and see a building on fire, and the building, nothing's happening to the building. It's just on fire. It would be very odd for you to see that, wouldn't it? You'd want to investigate, and so Moses does. He goes to the bush, and what does he hear? A voice, speaking, communicating. The glory of God there, dwelling in that place. We know that's true. Why? Because Moses is told, look, you, get your sandals off, get those Nike tennis shoes off your feet, because you're standing on holy ground. Why? Because the dirt was holy? No. Because the grass that was around the bush? No, because the glory of God was there. And he's speaking. He's speaking to Moses, communicating the divine will. But that's not the only way in which God has communicated in the days of old. He did it through dreams. He did it through visions. And as the Old Testament goes much deeper in as we move further into the Old Testament, away from the first five books of the Old Testament, away from some of the historical books. As we get into the prophets, what do we see? And how do we see God speaking primarily then by the prophets? Just like the writer to the Hebrews says, long ago in many ways God spoke. He spoke by the prophets 
These, these men that were commissioned by the Lord to communicate the very will of God to the people. Now, if you know anything about your, the, your church, your, your Bible history, you know that there were tremendous prophets of old, men such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We know those as writing prophets, Daniel and Hosea and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah. And Na- we know those as writing prophets. Why do we know that? Because we have them in our Bibles. We see what they were preaching. We, we see what they were communicating. But what was it they were communicating? Not their own mind, but the mind of God. But they're not the only prophets, are they? We also have just the speaking prophets. For example, Elijah and Elisha. John the Baptist, even. What were they doing? The exact same thing. They were speaking, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the God of heaven, thus the one who wants to communicate to you, you weak sinners and creatures of dust, hear from the God of heaven who made you. Hear the hope that resides in him. Listen to him. Listen to what I tell you. And we see that exemplified all across the spectrum of the Old Testament, the function of the prophet then, of course, as now. Well, two things. Most people, if you ask, you know, what is the function of a prophet, they will tell you that they predict the future. We, I don't know why we, we gravitate to that so, so quickly. <coughs> it's not untrue. It is true. But maybe it'll shock you to know that the predominant function of the prophet was not that. Yes, they did do that. But the predominant function of the prophet was to preach. The, functional, the, the primary function of the prophet of old and the prophet to come is to proclaim the triune God, the mind of the triune God, his will. Hope to weary people. This is what happens every Lord's Day. This is why, and I'm sorry if this bothers you. Actually, I'm sorry, not sorry. Is that a modern expression, I think? When you're not here, you miss this. It's my voice, but God willing, it's Christ speaking to his people. It's the mind of God, Lord willing, insofar as it's faithful to the text of the Bible. It is the God of heaven who loves you, who has redeemed you, who has called you into this place on the Lord's day. You need to be here in both services. You want to know how you live your life? You want to know the mind of God? You want to know what his will is? This is where you learn it, right here. What happened in the days of old when the people did not listen to the voice of the prophets? It went swimmingly, of course. We're doing a study in Hosea in the evenings, and I think we see pretty plainly as Hosea pled and pled and pleaded with the people. What, what do we see them doing? Rejecting, turning away, not hearing, not listening, hardening their hearts, rebelling against him. And what happens? Judgment falls upon the covenant people. The primary function of the prophet of old, just like the primary function of the prophet that the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here, is to proclaim the word of God. To proclaim, thus saith the Lord, into weak, feeble minds like you and me. Now, if that isn't all glorious, I don't know what is. That God would bother to condescend to me, to you, to speak to me, hope, and, 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 and that which I need to hear, because if I don't hear it, eternity is going to be a miserable disaster. And why would he do that? Because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, that's why he did it in the days of old, and that is why he does it today in the very voice of Christ himself. The writer of the Hebrews says, as great as those prophets were of old, there is one that is much greater than them. 
He spoke in the, these last days by the voice of the prophet, the premier prophet, the prophet par excellence, the prophet we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And this shouldn't shock the writer. This shouldn't shock the recipients to this, of this letter. And it really shouldn't shock you. They're Jews, after all, and they know their Old Testaments. Old Testament. They know what Moses said. Moses, who they regard as being very important. What did he say? Hey, look, you know, you should be listening to me. And, and God has told you to listen to me. I'm the prophet of God. I'm speaking the word of God to you. You need to hear what I had to say. But you know, there's coming a day. When there's going to be one that comes after me that's greater than me. You need to listen to him. You need to listen to what he has to say. Those are today. That's now. This is where we are as in the history of the church. We have been here ever since the incarnation of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment is here. We are, as it were, living in the wake of the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 when he told us there was coming, there is coming a prophet that's greater than me, as great as I am, if I can put it that way. There is one coming that cannot be qualified, cannot be categorized, cannot be explained. He is the great prophet. That is Christ, the Son of God. All of the prophets of old were, were designed to point us in that direction. From the work of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the work of Ezekiel and Elijah and Elisha, even the work of John the Baptist who himself said, there's one coming after me who's greater than me. I can't even loosen his sandal straps. I can't take his Nike tennis shoes off his feet. He's greater than anything I can do. And what did that prophet say about John the Baptist? There's no one greater than him. What does that say about Christ? Can you explain it? Can you categorize it? Can you define it? No, this prophet transcends all comprehension. And he does that in the way he communicates. This one true prophet who would not merely speak, but he would die. The one prophet that would not only speak hope and glory and to the hearts of sinners, would also die for them too. How many prophets in the Old Testament died for the salvation of the people? Can you name one? There is none. But there is this one. He would die. He would do what he said he would do. He would do it that we might have Hope, the fulfillment. The writer to the Hebrews gives to us really a contrast. It's embedded there, and in the words of one commentator, he shows us very clearly, actually, as you look at this in verse 2, there's a contrast given, uh, that little word, but. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Long ago, the prophet spoke, an act of great condescension on the part of God. Let's not diminish that. But in these last days, he speaks as the Son of God, who is the Son of God. What are the last days? I know this gets, depending on what tradition you find yourself uh, that's defined in different ways. Well, let me just help you with the right definition. The days in which Christ, from the moment of his resurrection to his ascension, you've been in the last days ever since. The imminent return of Christ, this prophet, you are in them. That is to say that while you still listen to the voice of Jeremiah when you read him, that is to say that you listen to the voice of Isaiah when you read him, that is to say that you listen to the voice of Moses when you read him, at the end of the day, behind all of it, you must hear and you must see Christ. 
in them. But there's another contrast, and it's very subtle, isn't it? Not only long ago contrasted with last days, we have the contrast of to our fathers and now to us. You see, this is personal. This is you and me. This is not some distant history lesson of what happened 1,500, 3,000, 4,500 years ago. This is now. This has direct bearing and relationship as to the way we function as Christians in the world. This prophet, this great prophet, he is speaking not just to the, our fathers as some distant issue. He is speaking to you and me now. He speaks to us. The us. Who are the us? The us of the New Testament church, the new covenant, the redeemed of the Lord, the visible body of believers. He speaks. He's speaking now. And how does he do that? Well, first he does it by, well, speaking. He did that, didn't he? He spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament, but now he speaks and was speaking in his, in his ministry on earth, in his, in his, uh, in his first advent, in his, in his status as the God-man. He spoke as the incarnate son. He, he, he spoke to, to do what? To brag about himself, to, uh, to, to show forth to the world how great and wonderful he was. no. No, no, just like it says here in Hebrews, he spoke what? To show the world his Father. To proclaim the excellencies of his Father. To speak the words that his Father gave him to say. That's what a true prophet does. There was never a time in which Jesus Christ, the superior, supreme prophet, deviated not even one syllable, not one jot or tittle away from the very will of God and the will of His Father for us. We know in our shorter catechism, shorter catechism question 24, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet by revealing to us by His Word and Spirit, what? The will of God for our salvation. What was it the prophets of old spoke? What were they pleading for the people to do to repent, that they might be rescued, they might be saved? What does this prophet do? He speaks the will of his Father. Why? That he might save you if we would just hear him. If we were, if you will permit me, if we will just hear his glory as he speaks. He does that every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day. And this is the problem in the New Testament church, frankly. Oh, here he goes. He's going to get all polemical. Probably. People don't know what preaching is. They, they think they, they come into a church on the Lord's Day and they sit in the pews. And I, I pray it's not you that you think this way. But I'm also not so foolish to think that there's not at least one or two that do. They walk in this room, they sit down, they plop themselves in the seats, and they hear some guy talk. And that's all it is to them. That's not preaching. You see, preaching is Christ speaking to you. I'm not him. I know that went without saying but I have been appointed by him to preach him to you. This is to say that I speak what he would speak. Just as he would speak if he were standing here into the very needs and hearts and minds of the people in this room, as a good shepherd would shepherd the sheep. You see, preaching is, as you've heard me say many times, it's the living voice 
of this prophet for you. Mindful of you as the sermon is being prepared. Mindful of your needs. Mindful of your struggles. Mindful of your rebellion and your sin. Disobedience. Mindful of the places and ways in which you need to be encouraged. Mindful of the ways. Mindful of all of those ways. And it's tough. It's hard, isn't it, to stand here and preach to a room full of people with, well, 90 different needs. And try to hit every one of them in a sermon. I'm not going to be able to. But Jesus can. That's what he did when he was on earth. Sometimes he was stern and blunt and awfully frank as the prophet of God. Sometimes he was warm and compassionate and very gentle. So gentle you almost wonder why was he so gentle with those people. This is what he does now. That's why it's so important. I'm sorry if you don't like it. I, I'm actually not. It's so important that you're here. This is where it happens. And so he speaks. He spoke in his earthly ministry. And whatever an ordained minister of the gospel preaches the word of God faithfully. And that's the important word, isn't it? Just because someone's ordained doesn't mean they're speaking the word of Christ to you. No. Ordained and preaching faithfully the scriptures to you. Whenever that happens, you are seeing, you ought to see, you ought to hear the glory of Christ for your soul. He's the one pleading for your soul. I'm just the instrument. He's the one who loves your soul. I'm just the instrument. He's the one. Not to say that I don't love your soul. I do, but not like him. You see, he died for your soul. I did not and I cannot. Every time, every time, the word of God is opened and proclaimed. You are hearing from this prophet the very mind of God communicated in the living and written word of God. How does he speak? How, why is it that we can trust him? Well, just two points here as I try to think through that element of it. When we think of the prophets of old and that great contrast, we recognize immediately that, that Moses was not an infallible man, was he? We, we know he wasn't because strike the rock and the water will come. Speak to the rock. No, I think I'll hit it. Uh, not infallible, was he? But the people still had to listen. How about Jeremiah? Was he infallible? By no means. Ezekiel, Isaiah, I mean, the list is endless, right? Every human prophet that God determined to use to speak the voice, to speak for him, was fallible. But this one is not. Everything he said was absolutely true. Always. Every time. There was never a moment that he spoke untruth. You remember the way in which the people responded to this prophet as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, as they, as they labored to listen to that which he had to say. You remember the final words and the passage there at the end of chapter 7 when they stand in awe of him. They, as it were, they see something of his glory and they say, this man speaks not like the scribes and the Pharisees, not like those guys. No, no, he speaks with a man with authority. It wasn't because he was loud or used certain words in a certain way. It was because he is the creator of the universe. He is the one who invented language. He is the God of heaven, and he is speaking to sinners, and they can't help but see his authority. He holds it in his hands and he speaks the truth. That is to say, brothers and sisters, when this prophet speaks, you can trust him. Not me. I hope you trust me, but no, no. You trust him differently than you ever trust me. He himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. I am the way. The truth, not only in that which he said to the people was true, but he himself is truth. 
all of him, and you can trust him. You can trust him with your very life as you listen to the voice of this prophet. Well, what message does he give then? As in the days of old, and the prophets would speak, they had a message to speak, they had something to say, they had something to communicate. Often it was not very good news. You think of just the prophecy of Jeremiah and the temple sermon of Jeremiah chapter 7. Imagine being Jeremiah. Thank you, no. Stand in the temple and proclaim, thus saith the Lord, and then what? Oh, you people stink. I mean, that's the summary. You people are rebellious. You're hard-hearted. You're living in sin. You need to repent. Did they? No. Their response, we're going to kill you. And they tried. They threw him in a pit. Who does that remind you of? The message that Jesus offers to sinners is the, the message for all time. The hope of the gospel, the hope of glory. Walk according to, my, to the terms of the gospel. Seek first my kingdom and righteousness. Walk on the narrow road and you will live. He gives them the same messages, basically, that the prophets of old gave. And what did they do to him? Threw him in a pit. Put him on a cross. Crucified him for speaking the truth, the hope that every sinner needs to hear. Things haven't changed much since the days of old. Here we are, however many centuries removed from the days of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the rest, we still live in a people, in a, in a generation, we still live in a world in which they will not listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. The central message that he gives to you today is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust me. Place your hope in me. I will not lose you. I will bring you safely across the Jordan River. I will rescue you from whatever ails you. I am your Savior. That's the central message that this prophet gives. He does it in many different ways. He does it just by a survey, really, of the things that he communicates to us as a church using the book of Matthew. Now, you don't need to look turn there because I have it summarized right in front of me and I'm not going to turn there either. But in Matthew chapter 5, it, 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 through chapter 7, he, he teaches us about the righteousness of God. He proclaims the righteousness of God. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means, what, see, enter the kingdom of God. What righteousness? I have no righteousness. That's precisely his point. The righteousness that you need is that righteousness that comes from God in him. In Matthew chapter 9, he preaches on the forgiveness of sin. He, he, he prophesies, he proclaims the forgiveness of sin that, that he brings, that he ushers in for all time. No more tabernacle, no more temple, no more sacrifices. This sacrifice will usher in the forgiveness of sin that is so necessary, so needful for weary people. Third, and maybe not so fun, but true nonetheless, he preaches on persecution that comes to, to those who determine to follow him. Pretty sure he was persecuted day and night, not only by the evil one, but by evil people. There's a cost, he says. Hey, look, you want to follow the God of heaven? You want to walk according to his mandates? You, the world's going to hate you, he says. Count the cost. You want to be a Christian still? He's plain. He doesn't hold back the cost of following him. He doesn't hide it from us and, and do the bait and switch routine. 
Oh, become a Christian. Everything will be grand and rosy. And then you're like, good, that's, that's what I need. And then you go in and all of a sudden you find out, wow, my, my family doesn't like me anymore. My friends don't like me anymore. My job just fired me because I, I refuse to lie for my boss and a host of other problems. And wait a minute, I, I'm, I didn't sign up for this. Jesus says, yes, you did. Yes, you did. And you're going to rejoice for all eternity because you were made ready, made able to suffer as he did. Hmm. Fourth, he preached judgment. Oh, come on. Now, look, we live in a 21st century world where everything is love, 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 and Jesus would never say that, and I got news for them. You go read Matthew 23, for instance, and you witness the woes that he preaches. Woe? You might think, why did he use that word? Because it's a prophetic word. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over again, he preaches judgment on those who will not repent. He does that today. I don't know. I, I, I don't have the luxury, frankly, to stand here every Lord's Day and just assume that just because you're here, you know this prophet. Do you? Because he preaches judgment. He preaches hell more than heaven. He preaches the misery that comes to any who will not bow before him. He says that. He says it, why? Because he loves the souls of men. That's why he proclaims it today. But he also preaches hope to weary sinners. It's interesting, in the very same chapter in which he preaches judgment, Matthew chapter 11, he also preaches hope. He says, come. Come to me, all who are weary, struggling, miserable, tired, worn out by their sin in the world they live in. You come to me, not to Moses, not to Jeremiah, not to Isaiah and Ezekiel. You come to me. That's what he says. He preaches hope to the hearts of weary people. He preaches the mandates of the gospel and its kingdom in Matthew 10. What does that mean? What, is, what does that look like to say, I'm a Christian? He's, he tells you, hey, this is what it looks like. It means you deny yourself. Yeah, but I don't want to do that. I'm sorry. Not sorry. Jesus would say, well, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, but why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? You're not. You can't say both. You can't do both. He says that. That's what Jesus says to us. You profess faith in Jesus Christ today, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? He discusses very practical issues. He preaches on them even, like marriage. Matthew 19, divorce, difficult subjects. He preaches theology and the resurrection and corrects the errant views of the people in his day, and he's preaching all the time. And in Mark chapter 1, uh, he was, it says as much that one of the main functions of this prophet was to preach his father's kingdom. He preaches... In Matthew 27, he preaches peace with God in union with him. He doesn't do it with words so much in this case. He does it by life. You see, Matthew 27, of course, as you know, is the crucifixion. 
where there he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And as he gives up his own spirit, no man took it. What do we know happens in the temple while the veil is torn from top to bottom? What's he preaching? Access to the God of heaven for you? The ability by which now you can enter into the most holy place and commune with the God of heaven because you have peace with him because of the finished work of Jesus Christ who preached and preached and preached and preached hope to sinners and then proved it by dying for them. Do you see the glory of Christ? Do you hear it dripping out of just the sampling of passages that I picked? Do you, do you sense, do you have a different understanding, even a different awareness? Did you hear the glory of your Savior for you? What Do you, do you think he, he was just preaching to some blob of humanity over there and then you were irrelevant? No, no. No, no. Everything he said, everything he did, everything he proclaimed was because he had you in mind. Do you hear him? Do you hear his glory? Do you see it? How can you see the glory of Christ and as the final prophet? Well, first, you recognize that he speaks the word of his Father for your sake, not for his. Just as, in his, as the God of heaven did not have to reveal himself, the Savior did not have to come and speak a word. But he did for your sake. You need to see and hear that, recognize it anew. And second, you can see or hear the glory of Christ as the final prophet to you. Really, just very simply. It's so simple, I'm almost, well, you need to listen to his voice. You need to listen. What does it say about us if we will not listen to him? Remember what he said to one character who said, hey, look, you know, if these people came back from the dead, I'd believe. Mm -hmm. They came back and told me, I'd believe. And what did Jesus say? No, no. No, no. They had the prophets. They didn't listen to them. They got me. I'm adding this, of course. They didn't listen to me either. They didn't listen. Are you listening? You hear his voice. You respond to him in faith, believing that everything he says is because he loves your soul. It's not because he doesn't love you, it's because he does. Even the hard things, it's rooted in the eternal love and glory of the faithful prophet of God who speaks the love of God into the hearts of weary sinners. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we, of course, give you thanks, and we will have eternity to thank you for the, for the voice of Christ even today. Through the foolishness of preaching, we still hear him. We hear him. May we always hear him. May we see him. May we respond to him. The lover of our souls, everything he said was for that end. Be gracious to us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.